Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. haven't yet turned to the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm very excited for this Bible School Week. What a great theme it is to talk about the armor of God. We certainly hope some kids trust Christ this week, but what a relevant topic for all of us as we talk about living for the kingdom of light in the midst of the kingdom of darkness, you know, and living for God in the midst of what Satan's doing in the world and putting on the armor each and every day. If we can just teach each child and youth and adult that come this week to visualize putting on the armor every day of the rest of their Christian life, how powerful that would be. Well, like a lot of you, I like putting together puzzles. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to put together the pieces of a puzzle without the picture on the box? You know, the one that shows what the puzzle's supposed to look like when it's completed. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just had a bag of puzzle pieces and you needed to put it together and try to do it, but without that box that's there? It's a lot less fun, isn't it? Because when you have the big picture of what the puzzle is supposed to look like when it's completed, it gives you the context to understand where the individual puzzle pieces fit and where they go. Otherwise, you're just looking at puzzle pieces and saying, you know, where does that fit in the whole thing? And what does it mean when you put it together and, and you have no context for it? Now, when I'm working a puzzle, there's another thing that I do after pouring all the puzzle pieces on the table. What do you think I do? Well, some of you say, well, first you turn over all the puzzle pieces. I don't generally do that, but that's okay. Uh, I turn them together as I go, but I begin putting the border of the puzzle together, right? Because when you've got the puzzle box and picture of what it's supposed to look like, and then you see those border pieces, and after an hour or two of work, you have the border put together, then you, the puzzle pieces themselves make a lot more sense as you're going down through there. Well, you say, what's the point, preacher? Well, something like that is happening in the book of Ecclesiastes as we go through it. This is our third message in. We've covered Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We've covered Ecclesiastes chapter 2. In chapter 2, especially, Solomon described how he tried to make sense of life one piece at a time. One piece at a time. Where does it fit? You know, where do the things that we enjoy in life and sometimes go to sinful excess on, where do they fit in the grand scheme of things? And at the end of that pursuit, Solomon tells us he was left frustrated and hating life. He didn't see how it all fit together. But when we finish looking at what Solomon lays out for us today from Ecclesiastes 3, you know what it's going to be like? It's going to be like having the picture of the puzzle, but also the border of the puzzle filled in. That's the role that Ecclesiastes 3 has as Solomon's trying to figure life out and trying to present for us Uh, the border and the context that our lives fit in. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 15. Writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon writes, 
For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them people to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, all his work. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. God's eternal hand overshadows time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the time of music we've had already, for the, just the time of joy that it was and the time of perspective and worship and the trombone king and the drama and all the different things, Lord God, that just made it a special time of worship for you. And that was valuable in and of its own self, but it also prepared our hearts now to look at the timeless truth here from Ecclesiastes 3. Lord, we thank you that your eternal hand of providence is at work and has been in every person's life in this room, we can confidently say, going all the way back to your plan from eternity past, going all the way back to the time you were knitting them together in their mother's womb, we're told that you had formed every day the kind of things that we'd experience in life. And here we see that you make everything beautiful in its time. Lord, we thank you that there is a purpose, the plan to life. Lord, we don't always see it. Many times we're frustrated. For us, many times it's puzzle pieces without the border context, Lord God. Thank you for Ecclesiastes 3 and how it lets us know that in the midst of our march through time, you have put eternity in everyone's heart, God. We can't help but think about what matters and what will be true forever, God. And you draw us and you draw every person to a conscious choice either to reject you, to go on rejecting you, or to worship you and revere you and turn to you for faith and salvation, God. Lord God, I pray that as we look at this text, Lord God, you'll guide and lead us as only you alone can do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
We're going to divide this passage into two sections. In verses 1 through 10, we're going to see that God providentially manages time. Look again at verse 1. It says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There's actually two words for time there in verse 1. The one translated season is the word zaman, which the Greek Septuagint, let me pause for a second here, Before Jesus Christ came to earth, the Old Testament Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic scriptures had already been translated into the Greek language, and it's the Bible that Jesus and the apostles used as they lived in Greek-speaking Judea and all the things that were true there. And so you've got for Old Testament passages, you've got not only what the Hebrew said, the original Hebrew, but you also have a full translation into the Greek language that had been done before Jesus came. And so the word translated season is the word zaman, which the Greek Septuagint translated as chronos. You can see the word chronology in there, can't you? Chronology. Everything in the universe has an appropriate chronological unfolding. One of my favorite examples of this is Daniel 7.22 which says this, until the ancient of days came, Daniel's looking into the forward, God's giving him a prophecy of the future, and he says he saw the ancient of days come and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time, chronos, came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So according to that verse, everything on earth is moving forward. It's moving toward a chronological time when Christ will reign on earth physically with his saints. Amazing verse. Look again at verse 1. The word translated time is the word eth. That's the Hebrew part of it, which the Greek Septuagint translated as kairos. I go into this because some of you have heard about chronos and kairos as Greek renderings of time. Kairos refers to fixed and definite events, dates with destiny, we might say. Check out its use in Esther 4.14. We're going to put it up here. Esther, Mordecai, her... uh, Father in love, her uncle Mordecai said, who had raised her, Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. It always does because of God's promise and God's word. But you, Esther, and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this, a kairos moment, a moment where if you make the right choice, it will uh, help in so many ways the future as it unfolds. Either way, God will keep his promises. Mordecai says to Queen Esther, girl, this is your Kairos moment. If you fail to make the right choice and act, a lot of people you love are going to die in this generation because of the wicked man's choices, Haman and what he wanted to do to the Jews. God will still deliver his people in whole and keep those promises going forward, but a whole lot of people will die unnecessarily now if you don't respond to this Kairos moment in time. Now, you may have guessed it already. It's kind of interesting. We talked about how in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 and through chapter 6, the word vanity or vapor, it's emptiness, meaninglessness. It occurs more in that section than throughout the scriptures. And last time we talked about how the letter or the word I, the one letter word I occurs more in Ecclesiastes 2. And you may have guessed when we look at all these occurrences of time in chapter 3, Solomon does it again. 
The word eth or kairos is the one used so many times in verses two through eight. It's used more here in Ecclesiastes three than any other chapter in the Bible. And so then he goes into verses two through eight. It's a beautiful poem uh, in its feel about all the different things under the providential hand of God. Look at verse two. There is a time to be born and a time to die. God had a special kairos moment in chronological time for you and I to be born. Sometimes we look back and say, oh, it would have been neat to live in the 18th century or the 15th century or the 4th century or when the time when Christ walked or maybe the time Moses lived or something like that. But God doesn't make any mistakes. For each and every person here today, he knew when you would be born, he knew when you would die, and he's put us here together for such a time as this. For me, that birthday was October 5th, 1967. Say your birthday out loud. Got him. Good. Just like Esther, God knew. He puts you here for such a time as this, to serve God in your generation and die. Beautiful passage in the book of Acts where it says, David served the purposes of God in his generation and then he fell asleep. Just like Esther, you're put here for such a time as this and you serve God in your generation, then you die or you get raptured. Your parents may have told you you were an accident. Don't you believe it? Don't you believe it for a second. They might not have planned for you to be here, but God's plans are bigger than man's plans. And God has a purpose and plan for everybody that ever lives. So God knew the day you would be born. He knows the day you'll die. Maybe you heard me say it in the prayer, but in Psalm 139, verse 16, it tells us that God formed every single day of our life before we even left our mother's womb. Isn't that wonderful? Can you see those border pieces of your life falling into place and the background for the individual pieces that get put in as we go? That's what we mean when we speak of God's providence in our lives, God's providence in our lives. So God's providential care in our lives throughout time means his divine arrangement of details to give everyone opportunity to experience real meaning in life while at the same time, I don't know how he does it. He's, this is what it means that he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient, all-knowing. He's got foreknowledge of all things. He brings to pass what he wants to bring to pass. I don't know how he do it, but somehow, as the plan unfolds, it factors in our own good and bad choices and the good and bad choices of others toward us and the fact that we live in a world stained with sin and saturated with sin since Adam and Eve's original sinful choices. And that is amazing that he's able to do that. You know, we're playing checkers and God's playing chess, right? A master chess player, every move you make, he knows every possible option after that. And God somehow is like that. It's pretty powerful. Everything else Solomon mentions in verses two through eight fit in there somehow in this beautiful poem that he gives. There's a time to plant. There's a time to uproot what is planted. For you, that might have been, there was a time to build the business and now there's a time to sell the business and or retire. There's a right and appropriate time to kill, such as an armed guard defending a store from break-in. And a time to heal, such as a doctor treating a patient. There's a time you might be involved in one or the other in the appropriate time. What might be a sin in one context, just going out and killing somebody wouldn't be if you were a peacekeeper doing their job. And um, so all that's in here in this beautiful, beautiful verses two through eight. Laughter and dancing, hey, that's appropriate when you're at a wedding. 
Uh, <laughs> but on the way home, you may get word of a loved one dying and a time of weeping and mourning starts. It would be inappropriate to be laughing and just, uh, you know, when, when people are grieving around you rather than entering into that moment with them. And the early Christians were commended because they knew how to laugh with those who were laughing and mourn with those who were mourning. They were able to switch gears and jump into those and the sense of timing that God gives as we go through. There's a time and in place to embrace sexually within the covenant vows of marriage, and there's a time not to embrace sexually outside of marriage vows. Solomon also wrote Song of Solomon, and three times in Song of Solomon, there's this amazing phrase that says, do not stir up or awaken love until what? Until it's time. Until it would be appropriate to stir up and awaken love. Don't do it until it's God's time or else you're short-circuiting some plan of God for your life, some way you would have been blessed. There will be consequences. Now, I think about Ecclesiastes 2 and all those puzzle pieces we just mentioned and Solomon trying to put them out there and saying he tried through these pieces to bring meaning and these pieces to bring meaning. And it's not that the things like work and sex and amusement in chapter 2 were wrong in and of themselves. They were just never meant to bring meaning apart from God's purposes for them and his timing and boundaries for their use. And I love how Solomon's filling it in here. There is a time for every purpose under heaven. But if you get the timing wrong and you do things outside of his boundaries, in other words, he gives the commands to bless us. When you disobey him, you go off into sin and you're going to experience the built-in consequences of those sin. Then you can experience turmoil, not a sense of beauty, his beauty in your life that we're going to get to in just a moment. He says there's a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate. You know, sometimes I'll do a funeral and people are meaning well, but I, I often hear a comment um, and it just kind of irritates me. And it irritates me because as I've lived and tried to serve God, I have made some people unhappy in my life just by speaking God's truth, just by living God's truth. As a pastor, sometimes I enter the room and when people find out I'm a pastor, they get mad, ticked off, and leave the room. And the comment made is, oh, they never had a crossword about anything. They never had a conflict with anyone. There was never anything like that in their life. And I, I, I know the spirit that that's offered in during a funeral, but I always feel uncomfortable when I hear that because if you try to make a difference for Christ in this world, there are going to be times to speak up. And there are going to be times when you speak up that people don't like it within your own family, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in your school. It's just part of the deal of living for Christ in a sin-stained world. None of us should be silent about evils like abortion and racism and human trafficking and the increase in America of the genital mutilation of children. We send Gary Reynolds and others over to the other side of the world to help Kenya deal with a female genital mutilation problem and yet our governments around the states are certifying and pushing genital mutilation of children happening, the cutting off of things without parental consent ought to make us angry, righteously angry. Be angry and sin not, the Bible says. Nobody ever modeled that better for Jesus as better than Jesus. We think about him turning over money changers' tables. It's true. We love sinners, but we're called to hate the sin. Love God, hate sin. There are times to be angry and speak up with righteous indignation, but without sinning, without 
the kind of anger that messes us up. We need to channel the righteous indignation into prayer, into action, into voting when elections come and things like that. And through doing everything we can to rescue every person caught up in the consequences of sinful choices. And we all love peace, but there is a time to be at war and defend others against this world's evil rulers and regimes. And here's the thing. You can be enjoying a time of peace and then an Adolf Hitler works on the other side of the world and he must be stopped and all of a sudden we're drafting people to go over there and a time of peace becomes a time of war and it is necessary in the unnatural world we live in that's created as a result of sin. God created everything perfectly but there's a lot of unnatural things that we have to deal with because of sin in the world and part of that is stopping people like the Adolf Hitlers of the world. We all love peace but there's a time of war. As chronological time unfolds God providentially brings these fixed events into our lives. Our calling is to discern what time it is and make wise choices within time. As many of you know painfully well, life can be upended in a, in a day. As I look around the room, I see people that have faced unspeakable tragedies and hardships, and all of a sudden you were going, it was a time for this, and then all of a sudden it's a time of grief. It it, it was a time of love, and then there needed to be something where anger was expressed because of sin around you. I think about soldiers going off to fight a war. I think about people dealing with a medical diagnosis. And all of a sudden, there it is, and the next season of our life, we're going to have to deal with that rather than what we wanted to. And we feel so helpless before all of it happening, right? We've got our plans. We've got the things that we think our life will be about. We've got the things our month will be about. And then all of a sudden, that gets scrapped, and we are heading down a new direction that obviously God has allowed to come our way and will define the next season of our life. There are some things in your life that you didn't want to be part of your testimony. Widow or widowed were far, many more years before you thought you would face that. The sinful choices of another that led to a divorce for you and you would have rather them done the right thing but they made those sinful choices and you are now on with the rest of your life without them there. The other person drank or was texting while driving and crossed the line and all of a sudden people you know are dead or you're in the hospital or other things like that. And you thought it would be about this and then all of a sudden it's about this and depending on the physical problems that happen through wrecks and things like that or cancer diagnoses, there may be no more of the normal you thought, now it's this. And it gets diverted and we say, Lord, why? Why is this part of it? Ecclesiastes 3 gives us the background and gives us the border. And it lets us know that nothing catches God off guard. He's not in heaven biting his fingernails. He's not nervously looking around at Gideon and the angels and saying, what are we going to do? Boy, I sure hope this works out down there. Again, he's like that master chess player, factoring it all in. Our own sinful choices, the sinful choices of others toward us, sin in the world 
that has made the world an unnatural place and not what it was in the Garden of Eden and not what it will be when Christ returns and sets up his earthly paradise. Now, you may object here that you don't like the fact that we have to deal with unpleasant things in the world. And it makes you not want to believe in a God that would make a world like that. But here's where we have to factor in. In fact, from chapter 3, turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And I'm going to share with you verse 20 and verse 29 where, again, we talked about it. Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's almost like there's an Ecclesiastes road. You know, we talk about the Romans' road to salvation. And Ecclesiastes, you could pull out the different verses and kind of have an Ecclesiastes road. Two of them are Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 and then verse 29. Verse 20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Sounds like Romans 3.23, doesn't it? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 29, see this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they, mankind, have sought out many schemes. Isn't that a great verse? God made us upright, but we seek out many schemes. Now, of course, we inherit a sin nature of Adam and Eve. Early on in life, we make our own sin choices and we're found guilty before a holy God. We're sinners by nature and by choice. God's creation is perfection, uh, but he gave angels and men free will, so love for him and each other would be meaningful instead of robotic. Every once in a while I think, what if there was another planet out there where there was another Adam and Eve, but on that planet they didn't have free choice. And on that planet, 6,000 years later, Adam and Eve would still be alive. So would their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, all the way down to today. Adam could come be our guest speaker. But on that planet, with everyone living, no suffering of any kind, it would always be, I love you to God, I love you to each other. It would be very robotic because they couldn't choose not God. They couldn't choose not to love. And when I think about the emptiness that Ecclesiastes speak of, I couldn't think of an emptier world than not being able to meaningfully love and be loved back by God and by those around us that we love. How empty it would be if we had to, had to, had to. Now fortunately, we have made the choice to love Jesus and turn to him, those that are saved, and in the world to come, that's all we'll want. And so love will truly be as meaningful as it is for God and worship of God and love for one another, all that are out there. But God gave choice and Adam and Eve chose to sin and in every generation if we'd been Adam and Eve, we probably would have done what they did. The time would have come we would have chosen not God and sin would have entered the world and certainly for our own sin choices. You know, sometimes you run into people and there's some in town that are at churches that preach and teach that there is no such thing as that original sin. Well, we'd get there soon enough ourselves. There certainly is original sin and to be a Christian you pretty much have to believe in that doctrine that we're sinners by nature and early on in life uh, make our own sin choices but we would have all done it too. And all human suffering is ultimately caused by sin. A person's own sin, other sinful choices toward them, or the destruction in the very creation that came about through Adam and Eve's original sin. You may not like that, because that's the bad news. But the good news is God himself has acted in time to do something about it. And hear this well, the question of whether God cares or not was settled at the cross. Amen? God took on human flesh, has entered into our suffering and pain. He, in a sense, suffers through all human suffering because he created us and Jesus took our sins to the cross. 
And it's so powerful to think about. And, you know, I get it. I get it. I've talked to a lot of people over the years and suffering is a big deal thought for them. But many times, uh, most of my ministry has been in the context of the southern United States. And almost all, almost all those I talk to when they're struggling with suffering in the world. And when I talk to somebody that says, because of that, I couldn't believe in God. You've heard them say it too. I could never believe in a God like that, but... uh, you still got to believe something, right? You know, I was an atheist until I was 17. I had to have a view on suffering as an atheist. I've talked to Hindus over the years. I've talked to Buddhists over the years. I've talked to Muslims over the years. This is nothing to sneeze at, Darby. Um, Every single one of them had to have some way of processing the fact that there is suffering and what we do about it. Every one of them. And I'm not going to take the time to walk through now the different views. I can tell you about the atheistic one because Solomon talks about naturalism in Ecclesiastes. Suffering happens because there is no point to life or purpose to life and then you die and it all stinks anyway. So try to avoid suffering during this life. Don't embrace suffering for any higher purposes because there are no higher purposes and then you die. Just eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. Or don't. Go ahead and check out because it all stinks anyway. Pretty much how I thought when I was 17, right? You know what wasn't part of that equation at all? A reason to have purpose and meaning in this life or any hope for the next. Just to go into it briefly, Hindus believe you suffer. Or First of all, they, some of them teach that suffering's an illusion, so it's not real. <laughs> uh, well, Buddha said it is real, but it's caused because you have wrong desires. I don't like either of those answers because suffering is real. But it's not that people are always thinking and desiring the wrong thing, the reason they suffer. That's a hard message to talk about suffering. Muslims have their own version that's kind of fatalistic. And I'll tell you, they just think you must have done something to deserve it in a past life or now. Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims don't believe in past lives like that. But you must have done something to deserve it. And then you need to, you know, there's no hope after this life really. Muhammad himself, when he died, didn't have any hope that he'd be in paradise. He just hoped it would be. He wasn't certain about it. So Christians have an understanding from our Bible that there is suffering in the world because of human sin, but God has acted in time to do something about it. And that gives hope to those who embrace him, a desire to make the world a better place now. He calls us to action, not indifference. Buddhists are taught to meditate above it all and just accept that Part of the world stinks like that. We're called to do something about it, and that's why Christians built the hospital, first hospitals, uh, educated girls when others wouldn't. That's why we went around the world doing good of all different kinds, burying the lepers during times of plagues and things like that. We've always been rushing in to help when others have been going, oh no, we might die, and then that'd be it, and we don't know what happens next. But we've been going in, and then we have hope for the world to come through our faith in Christ. I like how it comes together, this concept that God's in control and he's got this purpose for human time in Acts 3, 19 through 21. You might want to turn there from Ecclesiastes. We are going to come back to Ecclesiastes 3, but in Acts chapter 3, if you've never seen verses 19 through 21, you are just going to be amazed at them.
This is while Peter was preaching, not the first time when 3,000 were saved and baptized, but after that. And it's such an amazing, wonderful passage. Look what he says, verse 19. Peter says, repent, turn therefore. Repent therefore and turn back. Change your mind and turn back to God that your sins may be blotted out, that times, the word kairos, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's what happened in 1991 to Mac Powell that he was singing about. You gave your date out there. The times of refreshing that start with salvation and he keeps on refreshing as we come into his house and gather with other believers and have mountaintop experiences. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he might send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time, and there the word is chronos, the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet long ago. When a person turns to God, there's times of refreshing now and throughout life for them, and then the best is yet to come. Eternity with God, first in heaven and then later on earth that he will rule on physically and powerfully. Folks, there's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to be born and there's a time to be born again. Look again at verses nine and 10 after this great poem in verses two through eight of Ecclesiastes three, after this amazing poem, he comes back in verse nine and he says, what gain has the worker in his toil and in this busy task God has given us? Did you recognize that as something he asked back in chapter two? See, now that he's brought this border in in Ecclesiastes three, he goes back to that thought and now he's gonna fill it in a little bit for us. What's Solomon really saying there? He's asking where we fit in this puzzle of life that God has given us to figure out. And so he leads from the first point to the second one, what verses 11 through 15 are about. God providentially manages time, but we also see that God purposefully instills eternal thoughts inside of us. Look at verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. I could say that 50 times in a row and it wouldn't get old, any one of them. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Say it with me. God has made everything beautiful in its time. I wonder if you believe that. I wonder if you believe that God is purposefully taking care of all things and providentially at work in this world and purposefully moving in every heart in this room, watching online, those around the world, purposefully he has instilled in us eternity in our hearts as we'll see in a minute, but that he makes everything beautiful in its time. He has a purpose for flowers to be beautiful and they fulfill it, the animals, the sunsets, and even sinful humans have glimmers of it. The athlete at the very top of their game. Sometimes I watch athletes I don't even like and I see them do something and say, that could only happen because of God's gift to them in that physicality. That was freakish. That was supernatural what they just did, you know, that 780 degree dunk or whatever, you know. Um, the creativity of artists and musicians, but humans have to turn to God to see the real beauty come out. And what a wonderful thought when we think about that. If we let him, if you let him, God will make everything beautiful in your life in its time. 
He doesn't factor just this life, he factors eternity too. But God is at work in you and through you to accomplish his will. And he will make everything beautiful in its time. Boy, that matters. That matters in a world that thinks we're individual accidents and the world's going nowhere and then we just die. Changed everything for me, I'll tell you. We're gonna reach a point in Ecclesiastes where Solomon says, man, sometimes I thought it would have been better if I'd never been born. And for years I was glad I was a Christian uh, and was gonna get to go to heaven, but didn't think that I could ever amount to much. And um, I, I, I was glad to be born again, but I wasn't glad that I'd been born. Many of you can relate to that. Man, I'm glad, glad I've been forgiven my sins and know the Lord, but you know, what's the point of Danny Campbell? You know? And you might be thinking that, what's the point? And when you get a hold of teaching like this, that says God's always had a purpose, he's always had a plan for you and you and you, not just the preacher. When you get a hold of that and you realize he's in the process of making everything beautiful in its time, it puts a song in your heart. Something beautiful, something good, all my confusion he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, but he made something beautiful of my life. And he'll do that for you too. Oh, how he wants to. That word beautiful is used most in the Song of Solomon, (laughs) where the lovers extol the beauty of their beloved And I hope you have learned to enjoy what God is making beautiful in the midst of this fallen world with all its frustrations. Look at again at verse 11. He says, also, say also, God has put eternity into man's heart. God has put eternity into man's heart. God has put a sense of eternity into our hearts. What an amazing verse. God has established an impulse in man, leading him or her beyond that which is temporal toward the eternal, beyond just this life to the life to come. It lies within us not to be contented with the temporal. That's what in and of itself, that's what verse chapter two was about. These pieces that don't fit together unless we have the greater frame, the eternal frame. We can't stop thinking about eternal questions. I love how C.S. Lewis said it. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Isn't that good? You're supposed to be frustrated when somebody dies. Everything inside of you is supposed to scream out, they can't just be gone. They've got to be out there somewhere. And guess what? They're not gone. They're absent from the body, but if they're a believer, they're present with the Lord. And if they're a non-believer, they're awaiting the final judgment. That's why Ecclesiastes extols wise choices, turning to God in this lifetime, revering him. When you see an act of injustice, Solomon's going to get into that as we go through Ecclesiastes, it's supposed to say it shouldn't be this way. When we see child abuse even in churches and religious institutions we say it should not be that way and we're right God put that inside of you God put inside you a sense of how it ought to be how it ought to be 
And we can't even make sense of the world without that backdrop of, under, of trying to connect those dots and fill in those borders, can we? I'm not sure I've shared it on a Sunday morning. If I did, it was a long time ago. I met with a fellow, very smart, uh, a molecular geneticist type fellow up at UVA. And uh, he wanted to be a better husband and uh, I wanted to learn some about his very interesting work. And so we started meeting together. He became a better husband. I still didn't understand what he was saying. But, uh, but he said that he oftentimes goes to workshops and he's got a supervisor that's Mr. Smart Guy up there, you know. And the guy would talk about a certain birth defect that when he sees it, he knows there can't be a God because that child's only going to live for an hour or two and then die. And that man, Mr. Smarty Pants, uses that as a reason not to believe in God. And my smart friend was saying, I don't know how to answer him, Danny. And I just started chuckling. He said, why are you laughing? I said, because it sounds like a, my Steps to Peace with God gospel booklet that I have. How does he know it shouldn't be that way? Because most of the time when somebody's born, it's not there. And the child goes on to live for years and decades and has a big life. But in some cases, it's not there. But how does he know it's supposed to be there? God put that inside of him. God made perfect. God had a purpose and plan. Human sin means we suffer because of our own choices. We suffer because of the choices of others. Sometimes we suffer just because sin is in the world and we didn't have anything personal to do with it. Nobody toured us, but it's just what's in the gene pool related to Adam and Eve's original sin. And I said, the doctor couldn't, the wise, smarty pants doctor couldn't even say that unless he's borrowing the language of how it should be. And when you talk about how it should be, you're going beyond atheistic thinking about life's just a complete accident and chaos to there's a purpose and design that I, and I don't like that this is like this. God doesn't like it either. It wasn't his plan A. He's been overruling plan A, I'm overruling our plan B choices, bringing us back toward plan A ever since the creation of the world and our falling into sin. You know, there are voices around us that say all we have is now. You've heard them, I've heard them. Don't worry about standing before God one day in judgment, they say. They say YOLO. What does YOLO mean? You only live once. You only live once. And that's used as justification to enter into some kind of sin or some kind of excess. YOLO, you only live once. And they say, don't miss out on all the sinful enjoyments you can get involved in now, they say. And I used to think like that, and so did Solomon. That's what chapters 1 and 2 were all about. He tried to find enjoyment and sinful excess, but none of it could satisfy him. None of it could fill that God-shaped hole in his soul. And it couldn't for me, and it couldn't for you, and it couldn't for anyone that tries to make sense of the world apart from God. Every once in a while, back in those days, I would uh, just pull away to the side and sometimes take a hike or something, you know, and I'd think, this is nuts. For a while, I've said there is no God, but there's got to be more than just this life. And that's the way I think every time somebody dies and saying they can't just be gone. They've got to be out there somewhere. He said eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11, what a powerful, beautiful verse. And there is more. God has instilled inside of us eternal thoughts, eternity in our hearts. Think about it like this. A soul, once created, is going to be around forever. And so what does God do for every person on earth? He places eternity in our hearts. He, there's a sense inside of us that there's got to be more. It's what the ancients called the desiderum eternitus. 
the desire for eternity, and I know you feel it inside. And that's why we have those internal fights among us when we see injustice, when we think, see things how they shouldn't be, when we think about death. I know it's hard to figure out. That's why verse 11 has one more part to it, an amazingly long verse. But look what the last part of verse 11 says. Yet so that he cannot find out, man cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. Are you trying to figure it all out? Guess what? You're not going to be able to figure it all out. Those sinful twists and turns the world takes and how God's ruling and overruling and protecting. You just know what you see. You don't know what you don't see. 1 Corinthians says there will come a day when we'll know fully. Now we only know in part, but there's come a day we know fully. Moses knew the people needed to hear stuff like this. And so back in Deuteronomy 29, 29, look what he wrote. The secret things, the secret plans of God belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do the words of this law. You can't know the overarching plan. You can't know the reason everything didn't work out the way you'd hoped it would. Sometimes you get glimmers of that in this life. You will know one day. In the meantime, you have to fear God, worship him, trust him to be taking care of the providential things. What do we take care of? The revealed things. You know what most Christians don't do? Take care of the revealed things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Forgive as I have forgiven. View yourselves as stewards of the resources I've given you. Give back to me a portion of what I've given to you. All those different things. We spend our time in the philosophical part of it rather than those revealed things that he's clearly told us will point us to the life that he wants us to live and have for us. Now, since there are things we just can't understand, what should we be about? He's already told us but he reminds us in verses 12 through 14. Look what he says there. I perceive that there's nothing better than to be joyful because God's got this and to do good as long as we live. Everyone should, look what he says, take pleasure. The word there is tobe. Should, should find good, should find benefit in his work. This is God's gift to man. You ought to, as time passes, be able to say, hey, God has called me to do this and to be about these things in my life, and as I do them, the world is a better place. Take pleasure is the word elsewhere translated good or benefit. In other words, everyone should see how what they do adds value to the world. Boy, I just want you to know the world's a better place because you're in it. Whenever I've done a funeral for somebody that took their own life, they lost sight of that. And here we are at their funeral and there's more people there than they thought would be at their funeral and remembering all the ways they made a world a better place and they think I don't make the world a better place. If you're out there or hear this and you're thinking I don't matter to anybody, I want you to hear this loud and clear. You matter to God and you matter to everybody sitting in this room. We love you and we'll help you. Don't bear the burden alone. Don't go through the pain alone. The world is a better place because you're in it. It was part of the plan God has to make your life beautiful in its time. The tabernacle's a better church because you're here. If life is all just puzzle pieces to you and it don't make, doesn't make sense, hear the words here in Ecclesiastes 3 about God's purpose, God's plan. He's put eternity in your hearts. He has a beautiful plan for your life. There's a timing for the things you're experiencing and the times he wants you to experience. Your life fits in there somewhere. It might be hard to figure out, but don't go through it alone. 
you know, coming out of the pandemic, I'm really happy with how many preachers are saying what we've always said, you need Jesus. You need Jesus to have peace with God. But the number of preachers are now saying loud and clear what we should have never lost sight of. You also need a church family. Because part of God's wonderful purpose and plan is for you not to do life alone, but to go through it with others. In a church family like this, the small groups that we have, the ministries we have, and this time together where we're all thinking about God's purpose and plan together. Look at verse 14. Solomon writes, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. If you don't hear anything else today, please hear what I just read in that verse. Whatever God does endures forever. Do you believe that? Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. So God's got this purpose and plan. And why has he done it? The verse tells us so that people will fear him. They'll revere him. They'll worship before him. There are so many things we can't understand or change. We find ourselves dependent on God. So we ought to learn to fear him and trust him. And he is so trustworthy. I think of the serenity prayer that people in Alcoholics Anonymous learn to say. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Give me courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. It's all about God's timing in your life. Learn the difference. Accepting what's his to take care of and embracing what he wants you to courageously step out and make a difference in. Well, there's been some amazing truths in these verses, but one last one remains at the end of verse 15. See what it says there at the very end of verse 15? And God seeks what has been driven away. I don't know what drove you away. I don't know if it was something you saw in a church once upon a time or something a pastor said once upon a time, but you got driven away. Maybe it was some hypocrisy you saw in parents or family members or something like that, and you got driven away. God still wants you. This church still wants you. But it gets even more fascinating when you look at the word. The word driven away in verse 15 could also be translated pursued, followed, chased. And in Proverbs 13, 21, it speaks of disaster pursuing sinners. Remember Molly Hatchett's song, Flirting with Disaster. Disaster pursues sinners. All of the sinner's life, the consequences of their sins have been chasing them down. The consequences of your sins have been coming up over and over again. Numbers 32, 23 says, be sure your sins will find you out. But God seeks what has been chased away, what has been pursued by the consequences of sin. Romans 6, 23, the first part says the wages of sin is death. John 10, 10, the first part says the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's the bad news, that sinners have been driven away from thinking about God and the consequences of their sin are chasing them toward hell. So on the one hand, there's eternity in their hearts. On the other hand, the consequences of their sinful choices are just chasing them away from God's beautiful plan for their lives that will endure forever if they embrace it. How good news it is to see in Ecclesiastes 3.15 that it's not just the sinful consequences that are pursuing a person. God is also pursuing a sinner. 
He's also chasing them down. He seeks what's been driven away. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the second part of that verse is the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but the second part of that verse is Jesus saying, I have come that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. Ezekiel 18.32, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. So turn and live, turn to me and live. God is seeking, he's pursuing, he is chasing after and seeking what has been driven away. Joel 2.32, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Don't you love words like everyone? If you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. They were driven away. They've been pursued. They've been followed by the consequences of their sins. But there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. (laughs) The Lord calls them. He's calling to you now. You lost one. You broken sinner. Perhaps you are a professing Christian, but it's been years and you've been away and you felt driven away by the church. You felt driven away by the sins. Come home. Come home to Jesus. Come home. He's calling to you now. And if you've never ever had that time where you did have your destiny day, like April 21st, 1991 in the song, that day that you turned to Christ, perhaps day today is your day. Let Jesus change your eternal destiny and bring in those times of refreshing. One more verse, Revelation 3.20. So beautiful, it pictures Jesus. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's a verse we use in evangelism and I'm using it that way now, but it's also a verse that's given to the church. It pictures Jesus outside his church knocking on the door and saying, hey, tabernacle, Am I still welcome there? Or you got so many things going on that aren't about me that you'll miss it when I come. You've got to picture yourself from the inside opening the door and having him come in. And for some of you who profess Christ, you don't have a growing relationship with the Lord. You years ago made a profession of faith and you're nearly dead inside. You're missing times refreshing from the Lord. You had one at the day of salvation, but you're missing what God wants to do every day as you open that door and let him in. Bow your heads, please. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.